0: Good to be around God's Word. And if you go ahead, please, and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And if you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it No Greater Thing. We're going to be confining ourselves in verse 7 through 11 of chapter 3 Brendan preached on chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 last week he just did an outstanding job of that and I'm going to read all of that to give us a context for this whole chapter you know John Calvin once said this he said we owe to scripture the same reverence we owe to God what a profound statement that is when we gather on a Sunday morning we sing, but in the particular when we gather around this word, we owe to this word. The same reverence that we owe to God. When we sit under this word in this moment, we're not just being addressed by a pastor or a preacher. We're being addressed by God. God Himself is seeking to address His flock, address His people, and what a precious moment then this becomes, don't you think? So let's read from verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, the Pharisee, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead Let's pray. Lord as we gather around your word we are mindful of the words of John Calvin we want to give to this word the reverence which we give you the one who dwells in inconsumable life. The one who is holy and high and far above all things. The one who took our place at Calvary and called our names. Lord, you are the one who's addressing us this morning from your word. As would we have ears to hear, would we have eyes to see, would we have hearts that are engaged and soft to your words. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, for me, I've been going to church all my life. You know, Even in my mother's womb, I was there. I'm sure I was singing songs even in the womb. I was just in there the whole time. And There's some real challenges with that. There's also some great things with that. I've sat through what must be thousands of messages And in my mind, because I've gone to church so long, I've literally thousands of songs. And so different people say a song at different points. And I can remember how old I was when I sang that, what type of song it was, which church I was probably in at the time, singing that song, whether I liked it or not. I've got thousands of songs logged in my mind. And as I was reading and studying this text this week, there was one song, one refrain from the song, that came over in my mind again and again and again. There's a song that I probably sang when I was about 12, 13 years old. It's a song written by Mark Pendergrass. It's a simple song and it says this. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. I want to know you more. I want to love you more. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. Now, they don't write too many songs like that anymore. But I love that song. I love the sentiment of that song, the content of that song. And we used to sing it over and over and over again. It's such a song I've been very familiar with over the years. And as I studied this text, I think the reason why it was going over and over and over in my mind is because I think in content and in sentiment, if the Apostle Paul was a songwriter, he would have written a song like that. Because to Paul, the greatest thing in all of his life was knowing Jesus. That's what he was about above everything else. Above his role, above his heritage, above his gifts, above his abilities, above his family, above his possessions, above what he did. The greatest thing in all of his life was no one's And that's exactly what he tells us about in this text. It's exactly what he does for us in this text. In summation, he points us to the truth that the greatest thing in all of our lives is knowing Jesus. And what I love about the way he does this is this apostle, this pastor, takes not only the Philippian church, but I think us as a local church today, by the hand, and draws us to himself, and he seeks to answer this one simple question. What does it really mean to know Christ? Not just know people that know Christ. Not just know other people that seem to know Christ really well. Not just to hang out with people that clearly know Christ. Not just to know of Christ and have a lot of information about Him. But actually know Him in a relational way. In an experiential way. and a way by which you can say the greatest thing all my life is knowing Jesus. Is knowing the Lord. See chapter 1 verse 27, by way of background, Paul is exhorting us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's his main point, that's his overarching point throughout the whole of the lesson. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Having been saved, having been affected by his abounding grace to give our lives to living in a manner worthy of that gospel of Christ. And In chapter 1, verse 28 through to two eighteen, he shows us Christ. He shows us what Christ actually looks like and what he did for us. And it's a profound text. And yet Paul knows that if he just shows us Christ it can be overwhelming for us and it can be hard for us to get our hands around as to how we just emulate. Them. So he gives us examples. He gives us Timothy a young man who demonstrated a sincere and compelling concern for the welfare of others. Paul tells us, I've got no one else like him. So I'm going to send him back to this local church because he has such a concern for the welfare of others. He's like Christ in that and so I want him to come to you so that you can be like him and in turn be like Christ. He also gives another example, Epaphroditus, a man who demonstrates a sincere and compelling sacrifice for the cause of Christ, a man who went to help Paul in prison and nearly died as he did so, nearly gave his life for the means of the gospel that he sought to care for Paul. And then Paul gives us a third example himself and he does so not to show off not to boast about himself but he does so starting in chapter 3 verse 1 to give us an example to follow in this regard to show us that there is to be nothing greater in our lives than knowing Jesus Christ that's what it's all about all we have here then is a text which is profoundly theological Paul outlines the entire scope of salvation in this text. He talks about a conversion, about justification, about sanctification and glorification. It is profoundly theological, but it is also deeply personal. And I love that. It's as if this pastor just takes a seat and says, Hey, listen, let me talk to you. And I want to open up my heart for you. And I want to show you what it's really all about as a church. I want to show you who it's all about. I want to show you what it means to treasure Christ above all things. I want to show you what it means to know that the greatest thing in all your life is knowing Jesus. So my hope today then is that if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, it's my sincere hope that even as I give this message, you may encounter Christ and Him crucified. That even as I preach this message and these words, that you may see in your life that there is something greater than what you're presently experiencing. And His name is Jesus Christ. And you may, even in the midst of this message, turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and then begin to know Him and His profound love for yourself. And if you're here today as a Christian, it's my hope that these words wash over you and refresh your soul. Bring you back to what it's all about bring you back to the main thing the main prize, namely knowing Christ and so what does it really mean to know Christ well Paul gives us I think three things in these five verses from 7 through 11 here's the first thing number one knowing Christ means recognising his superior worth look with me at verse 7 he says but at whatever gain I had I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul begins this section by referencing his former life, his gifts, his privileges, his advantages, his achievements. And what he does is he uses an accounting term. So when you look at the gains and sheet, if you know anything about accounts, Paul's using that gains and loss sheet right here. And he's talking first of all about his gains and what he classed in his former life as gains. And he's told us all about them in verses 5 and 6. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That made him like a really good Jew, so that's in the gains category. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew his ancestry. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He most likely knew them and spoke Aramaic making him a a fully-fledged, quality Jew, so that's in the the gain category. He was also a Pharisee. He belonged to the most zealous and religious sect there was out there, and he followed the law blameless. As to zeal, there was no one like Paul. He followed the letter of the law to the letter and lived it out, and all these things were gains in his life. I've been circumcised, I'm a Hebrew, I have Jewish ancestry, I'm a Pharisee, I totally live for God. I even even persecute Christians. Knowing that Christ is a false gospel, I persecute them. I have many, many gains. And Paul stacks up all those things in the gain category. He had everything going for him. Everything in this gain category would make him important before men. They would all think he's amazing for his zeal and the way he followed this to the letter of the law. And he also thought, Paul as an individual thought, that these things would help him be acceptable before God. That if anybody on their own accord could get into heaven, surely it was Paul. Because I followed this law to the letter. I'm zealous more than anybody. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Jew. I've got it all going on. And Paul says, Once upon a time, I considered all these things gain. But then in the text comes an announcement of a most dramatic reversal. He explains that all these things that he has earlier listed, all these privileges, all his advantages, all his achievements, he's now taken from the gain category and he has taken them over to the loss category. He now considers all these things as loss. And not only all these past things, but as we read in verse 8a, all more things as well. Look with me again. Verse 8a, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. So not only these past things, but indeed everything. What he's basically saying is anything that I can pass as gain. My Roman citizenship, my apostleship, My gifts, my abilities, my possessions. I'm taking all these things that I once would have considered gain to make me hero-worshipped by people and acceptable before the Lord. And I've taken all these things and I now consider them as loss. Everything. My heritage, my gifts, my abilities, I've classed them now as loss. You know, what would possess a man to do that? All these things make him popular, all these things he believes makes him acceptable before God, but he's taken all these things and he's now considering them as lost, as nothing. What would possess a man to do that? Why would an individual do that? Why would he go on in verse 8b to say that he counts all these things as rubbish? literally reeking, rotten, maggot-infested garbage. My heritage, my gifts and abilities, I, I count them as loss. I count them as rubbish. Why would a man do that? Why would anyone do that? Well, here's why, as he says in verse 8. It's because he's found something of superior worth. He's found something far greater. Look with me, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because, here's why, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've taken all these things that I once considered as gain and I've taken them over to the lost category. i don't to count all these things as rubbish in comparison to to what it really is to know Jesus Christ, my Lord. And what a precious phrase knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, is. It's the only time that Paul actually uses this phrase in the New Testament. Different times he says Christ Jesus, different times he says Lord Christ Jesus, but he never says Christ Jesus, my Lord. But he does it deliberately because he wants to help us see that what he's talking about here is knowing Christ in a way that is not only respectful and honouring, but it's intimate. And so I've taken all these things that I once counted gain and I now consider them loss, because now I know Christ Jesus as my Lord. I know the Christos, the Saviour, the one that died in my place and took my sins. And the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the one that spins the galaxies, the one who stills the storms. I know him as my Christ. And I know him intimately. As marvel, not just out there, but, but marvel. And so I consider everything else then as rubbish compared to that. It's so endearing, isn't it? And so profound as you see what he's saying here. It's extraordinary in its majesty and its worth. See, Paul really is like the man, I think, who found the treasure in a hidden field. Remember that parable that Brendan started off the year with, the parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew 13? It's a man who finds the hidden treasure in a field and then in joy goes and sells everything else because he just wants to be with the treasure. He wants that to, to be the thing. It's that joy for him. He, he's not bothered about anything else now, he's found the treasure. And Paul is exactly like that. Paul had so much gold for him, but now he's he's found this treasure. And so everything else, man, I'll sell it, I'll get rid of it, I'm not bothered anymore. I just want this treasure. I want to know Jesus Christ as my Lord more and more and more. I just want this. Everything else is as rubbish compared to that. Paul's like that man, isn't he? And that's why for so many years of my life, in all honesty, I couldn't relate to Paul. I couldn't relate to the man who found a hidden treasure in a field and then enjoyed, sold everything he had just just to be with that treasure. I didn't get that. See, I grew up, as I said before, in the field of the church. I grew up in the field all the time. I was always in the field. And the field was pretty good. But it didn't dazzle me. It didn't amaze me. And I grew up and I had friends in the field and we enjoyed hanging out in the field. But it wasn't wasn't enough for me. It didn't dazzle me. And so as I got older, I started spending a lot of time on the fence of the field. And as I spent time on the fence of the field, I noticed there's some pretty good looking fields out there, to be honest with you. And so those fields are looking pretty damn good right now. And the older I got, the more times I sort of stayed in the field but went on little recognitions outside of the other fields to see what was going on there. Before you know it, I was spending more time in those fields than this field. Because those fields are really good. People said you're having a great time in those fields. It didn't have any restrictions to it. it. didn't cost anything. There was no serving in those fields. You could pick people up and go, It didn't really matter. you didn't have to work through much. These fields like I used to watch the show Friends when I was a younger guy. All the other fields looked like friends to me. It's just like, this is amazing. Everybody's so happy all the time. And yet in this field, it can be quite difficult. But in those fields, it's amazing. The field are amazing. Sat on the fence, started from the other fields, started to spend time in the other fields, and then, 19 years old, in the midst of being in another field, my life fell apart. God in His grasp took me from that field, took me back over the fence, brought me into the field of the church and opened my eyes to the treasure. And it changed my life. For years growing up, I'd seen other people affected by treasure, but I'd never been affected quite like that, and the fear wasn't enough. But at 19, I found the treasure, and it changed my life. Grace, in a moment, and over those weeks and months, I still remember it well, became amazing. Grace changed my life. What Jesus Christ had done, not just in a far off way, but for me, I knew what it was to have Christ Jesus as my Lord. And it changed my life. And in that moment, and over those months when I was 19, I began to understand and relate to Paul why it is he could say, the greatest thing in all my life is knowing Jesus. I don't want anything. But I can have said that for so many years of my life. And maybe you're here today and you can't say that. Maybe you've grown up in the field of the church. Maybe for the last month you've been in the field of the church. Maybe you've been in the field of the church all of your life. Well, I want to encourage you. My friends, the field will never satisfy you. It will never be enough. The church can be great, but it can also be disappointing at times. You will experience great joy, you will experience hurt because it's family life. The field of the church will never amaze you. It will never be enough to satisfy you. But I also want to encourage you if you go over the fence like I did, the world will never satisfy you either. It will never be enough. It dazzles, but all the dazzles is not gold. You know what I'm saying? You think it's going to be great. You think if only I could do that, I would be satisfied. And you don't notice that everybody in the world is also holy field after field after field in search of something more. And we need to wise up and see that because that's what we see all the way through the Bible. People go from one thing to the next to the next, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find true joy, trying to find their identity and their purpose and their joy. The field of the church will never satisfy you, the field of the world will never satisfy you. But Jesus Christ the true treasure, as your Lord and Saviour will fully and individually, alone, satisfy you. He's the one. He is the only one that you can encounter and then say in your life, the greatest thing in all my life is knowing him, nothing else matters. I was measuring on scales and nothing else would matter compared to the knowing the joy, the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And so if you can relate to my story and you've not yet found the treasure, I want to encourage you, today cry out to him. Ask the Lord for help. Cry out to him. The Lord, I'm in the field, but I don't perceive that I've found the treasure. Lord, did you open my eyes to the treasure? And here's the promise of Matthew 7. As you ask, as you seek, as you knock, He will open your eyes to the treasure. Whether it be in a moment or whether it be over a period of time, He will open your eyes to the treasure and by God's grace, your life will change. Not as a duty, but as a delight, because you are a better person. You will met a better person that will change your life and will enable you to say, there is nothing greater in my life than knowing Him. That's what happened to Paul. As he was on the Damascus Road on his way to kill Christians, believing that Christ is, in effect, a, a false God. And yet he encounters Christ. And in that moment, his eyes are opened to the treasure. And over the weeks and months, he spends more and more time with Christ to the point where he can now say, I consider everyone else lost. It's a passing joy in of Knowing Christ means recognising his superior worth. That's not all. Number two. Knowing Christ means recognising his saving work. Look with me at verse 8b. It says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, what Paul, I think, has worked through in his life, and perhaps grasped better than anybody else alive at this time, is simply this, the equation that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That if you add anything to Jesus, you are left with nothing. It's the work of legalism. It's the work of adding to the gospel and Paul knew it. He was a defender of the gospel, a defender of the faith because he knew Jesus is alone for everything but Jesus plus anything equals nothing. So in verse 2, he warns the Philippian church against the dogs and the evildoers. I mean, he... He's not very kind to them, is he? You want to read the book of Galatians? He's rancid about this stuff because he's aware, do not not try and smuggle in works to my church because it is all by grace. Salvation is fully and complete through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. So would we not... Add works. That's what he does all the way through the book of Galatians and here we see him in the Philippians warning them of the same thing. Listen, look out for the dogs and the evildoers. They will be people that will be saying, Christ Christ is good, but you need Christ plus this. Christ plus your heritage. Christ plus your gifts. Christ plus your actions. And only then will you be true to that? Paul said "No, Christ alone is enough. He's done enough. It's not about your works, it's about His works. And so in verse 9, He re-emphasizes to them that they do not have a righteousness that comes from the law, but they have a righteousness that comes through faith. It is simply by faith that salvation exists. It's not about Christ plus my good works. It is all and completely about Christ. Full stop. It's all His work. And as we put our faith in Him as our Lord and Saviour, His righteousness, His 33 years of righteousness that he lived, complete perfection before the Lord, is then imputed to us. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when God the Father sees us, he sees us as holy. He sees us as perfect because he sees us through the lens of his Son. Is that not scandalous grace? See, as Christians, we forget that, which is why we try to act to it. But if we just remember we are... Alone in a robe of righteousness. Well, what are you trying to add to that? Well, the robe's probably not enough. I better start reading my Bible more. They've got to be impressed. He got impressed with whatever you read. But he's very impressed with the robe of righteousness. And that's what his son gave to him. Paul is dogged in his attempt to ensure that they understand you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ. Plus anything equals nothing. And Paul understands that. And yet, I think what Paul had also worked out in his life, so clearly grasped, the more I reflected on this this week, is that although that gift of righteousness was free to us, it cost the Son everything. And so, when we read. In verse 9, that we have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. I submit to you, that's not just Paul scribbling away and says, what should I tell him? Oh yeah, faith in Christ, oh good. As he pens those words, faith in Christ, just prior to talking about how he wants to suffer like Christ, to honour Christ in his suffering. As he pens those words, he's very aware of the suffering of Christ. He's very aware that that righteousness that we now wear, that was free to us, was not free to the Son. And it cost him everything. And I think it's understanding that and grasping that, as Paul so clearly does in all of his letters, that informs us about another aspect of what it is to know Jesus. Because I think Paul was fueled by that love. He was fueled by that affection. He wasn't getting up in the morning going, oh, you know, I should probably spend time with God today. I should probably do something. He's getting up and saying, I, I can't wait to be with the Lord today because he's the one that died in my place. He's the one who gave everything up for me. How can I not want to be with him? I think that's so important when it comes to having a relationship with Christ, recognizing his saving work in our lives. See, if you, on the way home today, and you're on your way home, and maybe you're going on the bus, and you're waiting for a bus, and that bus draws near, and one of your uh, sorry, somebody draws out in front of that bus, you don't know them, but somebody goes out in front of that bus, and the bus is just about to knock them over, but somebody else runs them, pushes them out of the way, and that first individual is saved, and that second person actually dies in front of your eyes for that person, that would affect them. That would affect them in a way. I think if you share another life, people are like, I saw this most incredible thing. Somebody somebody pushed them the other way from the They took the fall for them. And if that person who was actually standing in front of the bus was, imagine though no, it was one of your friends or one of your family members and they stepped out in front of a bus and again this individual came and they pushed them out of the way and then your friend or family member was, was saved, but somebody else died for them, I mean that would affect you too wouldn't it? I think it would affect you even more you would never forget the moment where you saw your friend get saved or you saw your family member get saved by this friend. But imagine if you were the individual stepping out of front of the bus and then this you came and he pushed you out of the way out, and then you died in your place. I think that would affect you for the rest of your life. Not a day would go by that you would remember that man But the way he gave his life to you, the way he saved you. My friends, I submit to you when it comes to Christ, that's the way Paul lived. He was so affected. He was so aware that I deserve to die, but you, you came and pushed me out the way. And you took the fall for me. Knowing Christ in an experiential way and loving him involves an emotion and it's emotion, I believe, that comes from understanding. He has bled for you. He died on a cross for you. His Father turned his face away and he stayed there for you. Knowing Christ means recognizing his separate saving work. And lastly, knowing Christ means becoming like him. Verse 10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I by any means possible may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jeff Kurzweil says this in, in unpacking this verse, I think brilliantly. He says knowing Christ means an intimate, personal relationship that demands a response of the entire person. It engages your whole life. Because knowing Christ, really knowing Christ, touches all of life. I think that's brilliant. Knowing Christ, really knowing Christ, touches all of life. And so it does. And just like C.J. Mahaney said, the quote that I gave out a few weeks ago, those we admire, we watch, and those we watch, we become influenced by, and those we become influenced by, we become like. How true. So here's the way it works it touches all of our life. Because those we admire, we watch, we spend time with. And those we spend time with, we become like. Well, or so it is with our relationship with Christ. Because of a love for him, because of an affection for him, we can't help but admire him. And because we admire him, we want to watch him, we want to spend time with him. And as we spend time with him, we become influenced by him. And because we become influenced by him, we become like him. It's the way it always works, And that's exactly what Paul models for us here. As he admires Christ, as he watches Christ, as he becomes influenced by Christ, he becomes like Christ. Because here he is in prison and he's not sure what's going to happen to him yet. He's under arrest and he's aware I'm either going to survive this, which is going to mean to live as Christ and I'm going to have to keep giving my life on a missionary journey for him, or I'm going to die. Which basically means I will be dragged into the arena I will be tied down and then I will be mutilated by wild beasts. And as Paul is in that predicament and facing the reality of that situation, his premise is this, I I want to suffer well. And here's how I want to suffer. I want to suffer like Christ. I, I want to be like him. If I've got to suffer, I want to do that in a way that brings glory to Him. I want to emulate Him. And so I'm going to be crying out to Him for the power of the resurrection. I'm aware that Jesus Christ's power will be enough for me to see me through this sustaining grace. And as I cry out to Him for power, I want to be like Him all the way until I obtain the resurrection of the dead. All the way until I go out to be with Him. If I'm to suffer, I want to suffer like Him. Because I want to be like him, and to submit to you for Paul—that's not a duty. That's not something he's just doing because he "Yeah, i probably sure I'll become a Christian." And yeah, I suppose, and you know, with being a Christian and all, I should probably suffer like Christ. It'd be good to do that. <laughs> to Paul, this is like this is all I want to do. This is my delight. This is my privilege and my joy. So if I have to suffer, I want to suffer like Christ. I want to be like him because he's the one I admire. And I guess because I admire him, I spend a lot of time with him. Because I spend a lot of time with him, I'm influenced by him. And because I'm influenced by him, I want to become like him. So I want to be like Christ. Knowing Christ means becoming like him. And so to Paul, knowing Christ means recognising his superior worth. Recognising just how majestic and glorious he really is. Recognising then his saving work, that he is your Christ and your Saviour. He died in your place. He did that because he loved you. I want to know you. Knowing Christ then means becoming like him. We just can't help ourselves. Because we truly love him, we admire him, we'll spend time with him. If we spend time with him, we'll be influenced by him. If we're influenced by him, we will become like him. It will be our delight. So endearing then when you see this in the text, isn't it? So glorious when you see Paul setting himself up as an example. Not to show off, not to boast, but to explain to us as a church. You realise this is what it's all about. It's not about which library you're in. It's not about which roster you're on next. It's not about lunch. It's not about how many kids you're on it's not about what job you're going to do next. It's not about any of those things. All those things are like rubbish compared to this. It's about knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. He, he's the everything. He's the one who will stab us and melt our hearts and affect us and be all-consuming to us. For my friends, there's two points of application into close. Number one, if you don't know Christ for yourself, then know him today. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, for real, then before you go home today, know him today. The Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible is also clear that in and of ourselves we're cut off from God. We're an enemy of God. We have exchanged what he has made us to find, namely our identity and our purpose and joy in him. We sort to of find that in the other fields. That's so we've got all these refugees to find different fields that we can find satisfaction in. That's our very nature of sin. Rejecting God's commands, rejecting who he is, and living for ourselves. But he also makes it clear in grace that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, that in that moment we will be reconciled to God. We'll come back to him. And you know one of the beneficiaries of that? One of the greatest joys of that is this. You then in that moment begin to have a relationship with Jesus Christ not primarily a relationship with the church not primarily a relationship with the Bible a relationship with a person Jesus the one who died for you the one who wants to relate to you so if you're here today and you don't know Christ for yourself then know him today even at the end of this meeting if we can pray for you if we can ask God for help for you in this if we can lead you to Christ we gladly will Because there's nothing greater and nothing more important that you need to face than this question. Who was Christ and why did he die? Well, he was God and he died to save you. So know him today for yourself. And if you do know him as your Lord and Saviour, if you do know Christ for yourself, which is many of us, if not most of us in this room, here's my simple exhortation. If you truly know him and love him, then be with Him. Spend time with Him. Actually encounter Him. There's that wonderful story in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus tells about the importance of this. He says as follows. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed Him into her house. which will not be taken away from you, my friends. If you really love Christ and you need to be with Him, you need to spend time with Him—not because it's a duty, because it's what you have to do. Can you imagine if your spouse felt that way? Well, then you know I'm here again because you know I have to do it, and um, here I am. I've got probably ten minutes before I work. Is that it. You truly love Jesus. He really is the Saviour of your life. You take Him as your Lord and spend time with Him. Be with Him. Encounter Him in song. Encounter Him in prayer. Encounter Him primarily in this Word as you sit under His words, words that have been breathed out by Christ. And here's then what you can anticipate. Over weeks and months, As you spend time with the Lord, this one song will become your song. And it's this song. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. I want to know you more. I want to love you more. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. And Lord, that's our prayer. Lord, as we look to you for grace, Lord, we want the greatest thing in our lives to be knowing you. Lord, would you forgive us for the times where we get distracted, distracted with our family, distracted with our friendships, Distracted with our work, distracted with our church, distracted with our life group, you name it, there are a thousand things that fill our gates. And yet when we stop and we sit with you and we engage with you, we remember that you are the greatest thing. Lord, our hearts are so prone to wonder, and Lord, we feel it. But Lord, would you take them and would you seal them? Lord, help us to be with you. Help us to encounter you. Would you be the greatest thing in our lives?